Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode of Cultivating Her Space. I think there is this common narrative that Black women are protected from eating disorders because the body ideal in the community is more of a curvy, a higher BMI. And so there was this idea that, oh, they can't really have eating disorders, right? And what we found is like, that's not necessarily true. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or appreciate anything from this episode, please leave us a review to let us know we're on the right track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit cultivatingherspace.com to access our exclusive after show and other bonus content from the Patreon tab. Welcome to Cultivating Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey, lady. It's Terry here from the Cultivating Her Space podcast. I'm hosting a free podcasting masterclass where I'm going to teach you how to create your impactful podcast and how you can generate multiple streams of income. You can visit podcastwithterry.com to register for free. I hope to see you there. All right, lady, we have a very special guest today and a very important conversation that we're going to discuss. Today's guest, she just exudes good vibes. Like if you just see her face, you're just going to end up smiling. So you need to go try to find her on social media, go to her website. We'll tell you a little bit about her in just a bit. Tiffany Loggins is a licensed clinical psychologist and mental health wellness speaker. She specializes in minority stress within communities for people of color, eating disorders, and helping organizations with social responsibility. Given her clinical experiences serving individuals with a wide variety of mental health concerns within several university, hospital, and community-based settings, she intricately intertwined both a multicultural framework and evidence-based approaches to cultivate a safe space of active learning to help individuals illuminate new insights that accompany feelings of direction, and purpose. Doesn't that sound powerful? Dr. Loggins currently has a private practice, Discover the Authentic Self, where she provides individual, group, and couples therapy to help others in their process of transformation and resilience. Dr. Loggins, welcome to Cultivating Her Space. Hi, welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, you're welcome. Yes, we are so excited to have you and we are looking forward to this powerful conversation. And so we are going to dive right in with our quote of the day. 
I thought it was a white, rich, female adolescent disorder. That quote comes to us from actress Carla Mosley. And I'm going to say it again for the folks in the back so we can really ground ourselves in the conversation that we're going to have today. I thought it was a white, rich, female adolescent disorder. All right. So, Dr. Loggins, when you hear that quote and you think about the work that you do with particularly with black women around eating disorders and what comes up for you when you when you hear that quote how wrong and erroneous it is and i think it is one of those things that i have seen over and over again i have an eating disorder especially worked in Oakland, so a very rich Black community. And the Black women that I would see would not really identify with having an eating disorder when I would tell them. And I would bring up DSM. And it's almost something that have issues with, but not even able to either A, get help because of mental health stigma. And then when they do, sometimes they're just taught to like, oh, you should, you need to lose weight or it's this or it's that and not really taken very seriously. For sure. Yeah. It is so interesting. I think I've noticed that with other things in our community specifically as well, where it's like, mm, you, you have the behavior patterns here, right? We see that manifest, but it's like, oh, mm, that's not me. I don't have whatever that thing might be, right? Can you talk to us a little bit about your journey and how you became a psychologist before we dive into the meat of this conversation? Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I think I first became interested in... I would say just like pathology a little bit, like psychopathology is my family. It runs in my family, has it. And it was something when I was younger and I would see it and we wouldn't really call it that, but I was like, hmm, that's peculiar. And I think that kind of piqued my interest. I probably was like around like 12. And then I went to college and of course you take your psych 101 class. I really liked it. And then I was an athlete. So at the time I was thinking, oh, I'll in college, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to play basketball professionally. And then after my freshman year, I was like, mm, not so much. And I really just fell in love with psychology. And, I, and one of my friends who went to college with me, she was like, you just like stayed the course. So I got to college and I was networking. I met this black woman in Houston who had her own private practice. And she allowed me to come in for a summer and shadow her, just like watch her. And she was just this like, beautiful. She was so smart and intelligent. And I was like, wow, I want to be just like her. And she had her own practice and she was doing everything pretty much by herself. You know, she had an assistant and she really took me under her wing. So that was like my sophomore, junior year, sophomore year of college. And then I started realizing you really, if you want to go this path, you really need to have your research. You need to get experience. But I went to my IO, which is an industrial organizational psychologist professor. And I went to her and I was like, I'm really interested in this. And she's like, you're not going to be able to do it. One, your grades aren't high enough and you play sports. And so you're, you don't have time to do the extra research. And she was just like, no, like it's not going to work. <laughs> so I felt really kind of a little bit discouraged, but I was just like, whatever. And I ended up hustling and getting a research like assistant job that I could kind of do on the side at University of Houston because I was at Rice University. So they're close to each other and did that, went and got my master's 
in experimental psychology. And that's where I started doing some of the eating disorder work. So I did a research project on black women and white women. And what I had them do is look at images that were like real images and then Photoshopped images. Yeah, I think this was like a while ago. I don't want to date myself, but it was a while ago before we had social media where people can Photoshop and all of that. But I was really interested in it because I wanted to see if body dissatisfaction changed between different images, between white women seeing ideal images in between black women seeing it. And we did see that there were some shifts and changes. And I w- was kind of starting to look at like thin ideal. And as I went through the program, you know, I started learning a whole lot more about culture. Finished getting my master's, worked as a neuropsychoanalyst for Pearson, which really dealt with a lot of children's assessments and neuroassessments. Did that, really realized I, realized I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be more on the practicing side of psychology went and started doctoral program in San Antonio, Our Lady of Lake University. And then I got matched for pre-doc where I met Dom at University of San Francisco, their college counseling center, and then landed at Oakland's eating disorder enhanced program, which was like an amazing experience, a whole year of just like working with individuals that were really struggling with eating disorders that ran the gamut. And then did that for a year and then landed at Kaiser on staff in San Francisco, working with eating disorders in general population. And then recently opened up a private practice in San Francisco, you know, doing individual therapy, couples. I also do mental health and wellness talks for tech companies out here. And I just recently published a book that's going to come out March 1st. So (laughs) that's coming out too. So that's kind of my, my journey a bit. All right, lady, it's about that time. Dom and I want to share a few sponsors with you that we believe you'd enjoy. So stay tuned, get those promo codes, and we'll hop right back into this informative conversation. Lady, as you know, this month is Women's History Month, and it's a great opportunity to highlight the stories of Black women specifically. Black representation holds significant importance in conveying possibilities to everyone not just those of us in the Black community. I can recall growing up watching Oprah Winfrey and the Black newscasters in my hometown of New Orleans. And it showed me the importance of sharing my own stories and using my own voice. Well, the next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's latest collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today told from a unique Black perspective. From Tracy Ellis Ross to Beyonce's Renaissance, Michelle Obama to the women behind the Montgomery bus boycott, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. What I love most about Black stories, Black truths is the fact that the stories are from us and they cover topics we want to hear. I recently listened to an episode called Tracy Ellis Ross is an Icon and Our Favorite Rich Auntie. And it was just such a breath of fresh air to hear her perspective on her new projects, 
what she loves most about podcasts, and how she feels about being called the rich black auntie. It was good. Now, you know, black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be told about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Lady, I don't know about you, but tapping into my inner child and creating time for more fun and play has been crucial for my mental health. It wasn't until I carved out time to prioritize coloring and arts and crafts as an adult that I realized how therapeutic art really is. That's why Terry and I are partnering with Let's Make Art. Let's Make Art is a revolutionary crafting company that aims to help you to channel your inner artist. Whether you're a total beginner or you've mastered the arts, the supplies and tutorials in each monthly art box are designed to encourage, support, and enhance your experience with art. Tap into your inner child or find cool activities for the kids. Let's Make Art makes it easy for you to dive right into the fun part. Visit zen.ai forward slash herspace to receive 20% off your first order. It's time to make some art. I noticed something within the community of, you know, mental health professionals. Dom has shared her story. We've had other therapists on as well and other women that are in the field. And I noticed that representation is so important in this field. But you often, women often talk about seeing another Black woman that had her own practice that they really admired. And it sounds like you just, you really became the woman that you, that you admired back then. And I think it's inspiring too that other Black women can hear this and realize that, oh, she had, I think you said a professor who said, oh, you can't do that. And you're like, whatever, I'm going to go out here and make it happen. So yes, I love that. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. You're welcome. It's so funny. The woman, the her name is Dr. Sheila Jenkins. I don't know if I should say her name or not, but and she still has a practice. I actually ended up reaching out to her whenever the book got published because I wanted her to do my endorsement because I just thought it was like full circle. So I like reached out to her and I'm like, I haven't talked to her in like 10 years. And she used to write me all my rec letters. And so I reached out. I'm like, I don't even know if you remember me, but like I got this book, da, da, da. And she wrote me back. She's like, oh my God, I totally remember you. And she was just like, and I told her how much she was like the first one and how she kind of like has been a, a role model for me. And it was just kind of full circle in a way. Cause that was literally 2005 or six when I had the internship. It was a long time ago. <laughs> beautiful yeah that's beautiful and I do think that the importance of mentorship like people should not sleep on that like that is a big deal particularly if someone selects you to be their mentor Mm -hmm. like that that is a huge deal and then I also want to come back to your work with eating disorders right and you said that you initially got into it because you started studying body image. Mm-hmm. 
And so what is the correlation? Like, what's that relationship between body image and eating disorders in Black women? Like, what what have you noticed? I think there is this common narrative that Black women are protected from eating disorders because the body ideal in the community is more of a curvy, a higher BMI. And so there was this idea that, oh, they can't really have eating disorders, right? And what we found is like, that's not necessarily true. And one thing that we know is like ideals really shift and change, right? The other thing is that living in a society where you're constantly told you're not good enough, you're not attractive enough, women, particularly all women, but black women internalize that and actually weight can be a way to kind of overcompensate that. And that's actually something that I have seen. And I've seen it too, even in black gay males, which like no one, no one talks about that and eating disorders, but it's one of those things where it's like, well, I don't want to be overweight black and gay, or I don't want to be overweight and be black woman. And so there's like this other thing that it feels like I can kind of shift in control. And I don't think that's like talked about a lot, but I have heard anecdotally and we can kind of start to see that in the literature. So just as much as ideals can shift and change, we can also want some of those ideals that might not be in our community too, right? And that's the thing about white people. We're a very nuanced, diverse, heterogeneity type of group, right? We just don't fit in a box. That is so true. So true. And I feel like this conversation is just so timely based on where we are today. I mean, it's always timely, but it just has evolved with this with social media and all the body image conversations and the pressure and all that. When you think about like how you would define eating disorder before we dive into like, you know, the, the next question on this, what at the basic level, like what is it, an eating disorder in case someone is thinking like, oh, well, I wonder, you know, if, is that me? Do I have an eating disorder? Yeah. So, and I get that a lot of times too, because we, our culture naturally is pretty obsessed with like diet and weight and shape. And I mean, even if you think about like the BBLs, which is this idea of having like really wide hips, large buttocks and a slim waist, which is like nearly impossible to do. And so there is this idea around, there's like an eating disorder and then there's disordered eating. And so what we tend to do is when I see a client and I I see a lot of people who you're very aware of like anorexia, bulimia, and like binge eating is like becoming more popular, even though it's one of the most prevalent eating disorders. There's actually the most common eating disorder that I see is called feeding or eating disorder NOS, meaning they actually don't fit into that group. Right. So that's where we say that they might not have an eating disorder that is like anorexia, bulimia or binge eating, but they have these disordered eating patterns. And so the term that we kind of think about when we see it is like engaging in any like binging or purging, emotional eating, restrictive eating, which can be dieting, keeping away from certain foods, calorie counting, extreme dieting, laxative abuse, like anything of that nature that you might be engaging in but it might not meet the clinical definition of an eating disorder, which is based off the DSM. And so that's kind of how we are able to tell, because I see a lot of people with disordered eating, like it's pretty common, but they might not meet the idea for an eating disorder. The other thing is severity, frequency, and impairment are the biggest things. So if it's not impairing your functioning, whether it's like social, 
physical health, your ability to, to your job functioning, you might not meet that clinical definition of an eating disorder, but you still might have some disordered eating. Okay. So just to make it plain, right? We're still in a pandemic. I know that there were lots of folks that would, at the end of the day, they would binge on, particularly at the start of the pandemic, right? They would binge on their favorite snacks. Yeah. But they still got up and they went to work and they did all the things. But at the end of the night, they're binging on Cheetos or my personal favorite, Golden Oreos, right? Like, like so how do we know if... If I'm that person, I'll just use myself as an example. If I'm that person that at the end of the workday, I have to have my cookies, right? And I say, okay, well, I'm going to calorie count. I'm going to allow myself one serving of these cookies. But I'm eating this every night because that helps me cope with the stress of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Would we say that that's a problem? No. So this is what I do to be able to tell, because the word binge, we use this term all the time. It's like, I binged on this episode. I binged on this. Like, you don't even know what that means because it's very subjective. Like a binge to you eating one serving, that might not be a binge for someone else. So I always tell people it's like four different types of binges. It's like how I like to classify it. There are clinical binges, which is like DSM criteria which is what I'm probably like really kind of focused on day to day, especially in the Kaiser setting is when someone eats a significant amount of food, I'm talking like three to 4,000 calories in one sitting, like within a very short period of time to the point of feeling uncomfortably full where they can't like move. That's what we call a clinical binge. They feel out of control, right? So a serving of Oreos would not fit that, right? So that's a clinical binge. Then we have compensatory binges. Compensatory binges occurs if I have a client who restricts throughout the day, meaning they, you know, they're keeping their calories to like 1200 or they're keeping out no carbs, no sugar, or they skipped meals. And then at the end of the day, because their hunger cues are just like getting louder and louder and louder and louder. That's why binge behaviors typically happen in the evening and then they eat a whole lot of food. But if I look at what they eat and I'll write down everything they eat, it look and I spread it out, it looks like it would be kind of like a normal. That's what we call compensatory binge. Meaning that we're human. Like <laughs> we can't go that long without eating and if we do, we can become very hangry because our body's like we need food. And if you you know, you haven't ate for a long time and then you there's a buffet, it's going to be really hard for you to not control yourself. And that's just because it's like human evolutionary. So we call that a compensatory binge. And we like to teach people that because if they're restricting all day and we don't pay attention to that and we just see what they ate at nighttime and it was like a large meal, but I don't think about the context that they haven't been eating or they've been over-exercising. It's like, that was actually very normal. <laughs> it's because you're restricting that. Now you have this binge episode and we call it a compensatory binge. And we, we so, put it in context. Is that the same thing as intermittent fasting? Because I know a lot of people who okay. do intermittent fasting. So so that's why people who who have either an eating disorder, have had a history of eating disorder, we would say you probably wouldn't want you intermittent fasting. Here's the thing. There are some people who intermittent fast and they live their life and they don't think about it. They do it and they move on. 
great. Then there's some people who do intermittent fasting and it doesn't work. And it, it like makes them obsessive. They can't control their eating. It leads into a more clinical binge. Right. And so there is this gray area of some people they are like, I do it and it works for me. And I'm like, okay, probably not usually seeing them. <laughs> I'm seeing the people who they're doing, they're trying to do that diet and it kicks over and now they're having issues. And I have seen that where people do a fad diet and they had no eating issues before. And then they do a fad diet, whether it's intermittent fasting, keto or whatever it is. And then now they've developed this eating disorder where they're swinging between restricting and binging and they can't get off the cycle. And so, yeah, that is what can happen. There's a lot of gray area with eating stuff, right? So you have clinical binges, compensatory, subjective. Subjective binges is when you're like, I shouldn't have ate that. They're like, I really only wanted to have two slices of pizza, but I went to this party and I have four slices. Subjective binge, like you, you ate a couple more slices, not a clinical binge, right? All right, lady, it's about that time. Dom and I want to share a few sponsors with you that we believe you'd enjoy. So stay tuned, get those promo codes, and we'll hop right back into this informative conversation. Lady, as you know, this month is Women's History Month, and it's a great opportunity to highlight the stories of Black women specifically. Black representation holds significant importance in conveying possibilities to everyone, not just those of us in the Black community. I can recall growing up watching Oprah Winfrey and the Black newscasters in my hometown of New Orleans, and it showed me the importance of sharing my own stories and using my own voice. Well, the next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's latest collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Tracy Ellis Ross to Beyonce's Renaissance, Michelle Obama to the women behind the Montgomery bus boycott, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truth. What I love most about Black Stories, Black Truths is the fact that the stories are from us and they cover topics we want to hear. I recently listened to an episode called Tracy Ellis Ross is an Icon and Our Favorite Rich Auntie. And it was just such a breath of fresh air to hear her perspective on her new projects, what she loves most about podcasts, and how she feels about being called the Rich Black Auntie. It was good. Now, you know, Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be told about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. 
this is extremely eye-opening. I'm going to have some personal questions uh, toward the end of this conversation. So I'm like, well, let me check in with myself because some things are resonating. But I want to know, can you talk about some of the common symptoms of an eating disorder in Black women specifically? Yeah. So people typically think of an eating disorder and they merely go into someone who doesn't eat. They're like someone who doesn't eat and maybe excessively exercises. And then you might think of someone who purges. And so that's why there's this idea that we see where black women are getting completely unnoticed, which is their, our binge behaviors tend to be more binge eating, emotional eating, where we do have kind of these clinical binges. And it's not to say that black women do not restrict. Oftentimes if someone is binging or emotional eating, there's always the presence of restriction, which means like restricting calories, maybe even you're like, skipping meals throughout the day, you're trying to restrict certain types of foods. But what we will see is that it tends to be more emotional, binge eating, that type of kind of eating disorder is typically what we'll see, which can lead to also other behaviors of purging, excessive exercising, laxative use. I'm appreciating this conversation because I think we don't talk about this enough. And what you're pointing out is that there are a lot of things that as black women, we might be experiencing that we're not paying attention to that could be problematic. And so the one thing that I, I want to come to come back to is like that emotional eating mm-hmm. or stress eating. Because like even in my practice, like and I don't specialize in eating disorders, someone comes in and it's clear that they have an eating disorder. I'm sending them to you because <laughs> that's not my area of specialty. And so I want to make sure that they get the the specific help that they're needing in that regard. But I do know that there's a lot of people who are emotional eating or stress eating. And so can you talk to us about what that looks like? Mm hmm. And it's so common, especially in the pandemic. I mean, it's always been common, but I think the pandemic, it was like really, because you were at home, there's a lot of uncertainty. And so really you can just like focus on like the food and it has nothing to do with food. It's really a response to stress is really what's going on, right? We have these uncomfortable emotions and we're trying to figure out a way to cope with them. And I think this is really important when we talk about black women and just the black community in general, which is eating disorders may be worse because we naturally have more pervasive stress, right? We encounter racism, microaggressions, discrimination, sexual harassment. You know, there's a whole lot of other stuff we deal with too, but that doesn't even include just like normal life stress that we're all finances, kids, right? Jobs, partners. And so the common denominator of emotional eating, binge eating, a lot of this emotional eating you're talking about is dealing with like a poor coping mechanism, which is utilizing food in a way. And so that's the one thing that I do with people is like, we might even talk about food. We'll talk about the stress and trying to figure out different ways to have better ways to cope mindful eating because a lot of times we do mindless eating so you don't even notice like you just ate a whole bag you like feel very out of control and it's important for people to know too that when we're stressed in our bodies that there's actually physiological things due to evolutionarily why we tend to eat right if you think about it thousands of years ago right food wasn't as accessible 
So it was actually beneficial for us to binge, to binge, and then we'd have famine binge because we just didn't have access to food. So there is some biological things that are going on. Also, when we're stressed, our cortisol pumps through the roof, right? When your cortisol pumps through the roof, you actually release blood sugar from your liver, right? Because your body is assuming like, oh, you need more energy, even though the stresses that we deal with in the 21st century don't really require us to like fight or flight or run away from anything. So now you have this like excess glucose pumping through the body. When you have excess glucose in the body, which is related to diabetes, which is prevalent in our community, it actually increases your appetite, right? You're like more hungry. That's why even if you don't get a good night's sleep, you have more cortisol pumping through your body. And a lot of times people will notice that when they're having, they haven't slept, they feel hungry, hungrier the next day. And so it can kind of get you on this like really vicious cycle. And so when I work with clients, I'm really looking at how are they coping with stress? What does their sleep look like? And the types of foods that you eat. If you're eating like high sugary foods all the time, your blood sugar is going to be through the roof and you're going to have just an increased appetite and hunger because those foods just aren't, they're processed. They process all the good stuff and they put in all the bad stuff, right? And you actually, when you eat it, it's just like you feel hungry like two hours later. That is so true. I can, I'm sure many of us can relate to that. I want to ask a personal question, and I know that you probably can't give like a an actual diagnosis or anything, but if we can just kind of talk surface yeah. level, we're very transparent on the podcast, and I have a history of struggling with depression and anxiety. And years ago, I wouldn't say I resonated with the eating disorder part because someone mentioned that, and I was like, eating disorder, but disordered eating, I'm like, mm. And so for me, it was that I had so my anxiety and stress was really, it was prevalent. It was through the roof. And what I did was I would, I was the person that would like work all day. And I'm like, oh, it's been like five, six hours. I haven't eaten anything. And even like my stomach would growl and everything, but I'd just be in the zone or I felt like I couldn't eat because I just felt that anxiety in my gut, if that makes sense. And I, I really had to be strategic about trying to eat. Have you ever seen any clients like that? And what... I don't know, like what advice did you give them? And what, what do you, I don't know, what do you have to say about someone who's, who's struggling with something like that? Yeah, where you're like stressed all day, don't eat. And then mm-hmm. at, at the end of the night, you're just like ravenous. And so you're eating a whole lot. It's kind of what you describe it or what would you describe it as? I would say sometimes there's like a binge at night, but other times it's like, it's just like a little snip. I would say it's snacking. That's what my husband's like. He's like, you just, you snack all day. Like you don't really eat a substantial meal. It's just kind of like, oh, I'll just eat this little thing. But I never had, tr- like I never, I always wanted to gain weight. So it wasn't like I was trying to keep a certain physique or anything. I think why I was just so stressed in my body that it was kind of, it was hard to eat, if that makes sense. Yeah. So some people lose their appetite if the stress is too much. Like you can just lose okay. which okay. is common. And everybody's different. There are some people who yeah. are very stressed and they, they use food, they use alcohol, they use their phones to kind of cope with it. And then there's some people who, you know, they will get really stressed and they'll lose their appetite. And it's just, you know, genetics. It can just be like how you handle stress. Cause some people, even if you think about the stress response, right. That we've evolved to have this system is either we are taught to like fight, we are taught to flee or we're taught to freeze. So it makes sense that some people might just be like, just kind of numb out and like not pay attention to it. Numb out. That is the word. And it does, it does run in my family because there are women in my family that also struggle with that. Or it's like, oh, I don't have an appetite. I'm just going to like drink and ensure or like drink this protein shake because I, it's the stress. So I I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I would encourage people to, 
if they're finding themselves, they're really stressed throughout the day, they don't eat. And then they're really struggling at nighttime with like overeating is I would probably have them structure their meals to make sure you're like eating something for breakfast, you're eating something for lunch and you're having a snack and like literally programming it in your phone. Cause I do have people who do that. They like, don't eat. And then they like binge and they feel really just like not good. So how would you encourage us to support someone? Like if we notice mm-hmm. like, so Terry and I are working and like, maybe let's say we're, we have a day where we're doing a lot of recordings back to back. And I know that Terry will snack or not really eat a full meal. What would you suggest that I do to support her? Yeah. So it depends, right? If someone is like, you know, they're really struggling with an eating disorder. I mean, first and foremost, I think encouraging them to seek out help from a professional would be the first thing I would say. And then a lot of times people will have this expectation on themselves that they're like, they got to fix it. And that we're just, humans are problem solvers. Like, right. We've evolved to be problem solvers. And so we might think like, Oh, okay. I have to like get them a meal and I have to do this. So first and foremost, I would say, check yourself first. So one thing is like noticing your own fat phobia, right? Because this is actually very triggering for clients that I see is that they'll have friends and family who struggle with their own body image and they don't, and they talk about it and they're like, oh, I shouldn't be eating this and, da, 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 and this body, blah, blah, blah. And I should be exercising. And they don't realize that it's actually extremely triggering for the other person, just how they're talking about themselves and their body and their food. So the first thing is like being aware of like, how am I even talking about myself and food in front of this person? And like, do I have my own fat phobia and like internalize certain ideas about shape and weight? So like, first thing is like, check that. Cause that's extremely triggering. I have, yeah, that's like a whole thing with clients. I could do a whole session with them on that. So thinking about that with yourself. The other thing is thinking about how you're doing that to them. So you want to be careful about commenting on, if you notice someone has lost weight or gained weight, like we don't want to like, you don't want to comment on someone's body. Right. I think that's something we should just like not do, but you'd be surprised that even when people lose weight, people are like, Oh my gosh, you like, you lost weight. And it's like a, a good compliment. Right. Exactly. And that's, it can actually be very triggering because then it's like, what well, they don't say that the next time they see me for someone who has an eating disorder that can like run them rampant. Right. Or even if you know that they have an eating disorder and they've been trying to gain weight and you're like, Oh, you've gained weight. It's like, just don't comment on their body at all. Don't comment on body or food. You or look all. nice. Like you look nice. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> no details. Right. And so then, if you your you know your friend you know has struggled with not eating enough or whatever it might be, you might have an idea of like, oh, okay, so I'm gonna remind them to eat, or I'm gonna pick up something to eat, and you don't know if that's like actually helpful or more anxiety provoking for them because you just don't know how their eating disorder shows up. So one thing you can do is like ask them how can I be support of you? Like, what is it that you need? And a lot of times in therapy, therapists will utilize their social support to help them. So we actually will teach them, the person who's struggling with this concern to advocate for themselves. Cause sometimes they're like, no, it actually is really triggering if they do that. Another thing to do is you can try to figure out other activities don't, that don't surround food, you know, drinking, 
like figuring out some other fun activities to do with this person as it can be like really triggering for them. Cause some people might be like, Oh, I'm going to take them out on a meal. Cause that way I can like make sure that they're going to eat. And it's like, mm, that actually sometimes going to be, you might actually go out with them and then they could go home and feel like really guilty if they're not doing their work or whatever they are in their journey. And they might end up like purging or binging or feeling like they have to like excessively exercise. And the reason I say that, cause some of these things seem well, it's like, oh, if I buy the meal or if I bring it up, it seems like really helpful and probably coming from a good place, but you just don't know what that person's dealing with and how triggering it can be for them. So one thing I tell people to do is like, person to go see a therapist and be open with them and just let them know that you're there. Like you, you understand, you're, you might not understand fully, but you can like listen and be there. And being careful about like what you're saying about yourself and what you're saying to, to them or around them and how, cause we're so body focused. Even if you're like watching TV with a friend, you're like, Oh my gosh, she looks, she looks so thin. She looks so, you know, like that can be triggering and like try to stay away from physical appearance and like focusing on other things, right? Like really smart. That was funny. Like other things that we were so dynamic and we only focus on like body and shape and weight. Right. Which is kind of interesting. So those are some of the things that I would kind of encourage people to do. Those are super helpful. Thank you so much for that. And I will say, I know for my journey, like you said, jotting down the meals, like using my fitness pal and stuff like that has helped, but also getting pregnant and being and breastfeeding. Cause it's like, I have to make sure that I'm nourishing my little one. So that now has me accountable, which is great. But I think that those tips are also really helpful and even seeking out, you know, an expert, right? Like a mental health practitioner. That's always really helpful. What about if someone is listening and they're like, oh, this, I never considered myself to have an eating disorder or disordered eating, but this episode really resonates. Any advice for someone who may be prone to beating themselves up? We have some tips on like how to, you know, where to go and what to do, but like what if they're beating themselves up about where they are currently? Yeah. And it really depends, right? Because eating disorders is so diverse. Like people could be restricting or binging or purging or excessive exercise. So, I mean, first and foremost is like, yeah, definitely go see, seek mental health services. Right. But sometimes people aren't ready to do that. So it's like, well, what can I do to do that? And one thing that we do is there's a recovery record app and it was actually developed by a woman who's, I think it was her sister, passed away from an eating disorder and it's a really cool app and it's it it's not like a my fitness pal app it's an app where it just makes sure that you are eating and nourishing your body throughout the day and you can kind of track it like just taking a picture and it also allows you to track was i restricting was i binging was i emotional like what was coming up and it's almost like a an eating disorder like journal but through an app so I think that could be a first step because usually when I first meet someone, it's the first thing that I'll have them do. I will do a caveat though. Sometimes people can become, it, like it might not be helpful for them. So I always like to say that too. If you find that it's like increasing stuff, then just don't use it. <laughs> but you're not tracking your calories. You're not tracking your macros. You're just saying like, hey, I ate this for lunch. And like, how did I feel? Did I purge after? Was I restricting? And so the app will kind of walk you through some of these questions. And it's just a good way for you to just have more awareness around it. And I think that could just be a first step. You know, you're not putting your weight in there. You're not putting your calories in there or anything like that. I appreciate the, these tips. 
And I appreciate particularly the tip around asking someone, how can I support you? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that's, that's one of my go-to questions. Like when anybody is experiencing anything, like, well, how, tell me how I can support you. Like, what do you need right now? How can I be helpful to you right now? Mm-hmm. And, and so I love that because it gives the other person agency, right? Like you were saying, like it allows them to say what it is that they need. And then it allows me to ask myself, do I have the capacity to give them what they need? Yeah. Exactly. So I, I love that. And so Dr. Loggins, we have thoroughly appreciated this conversation. And earlier you mentioned that you have a book Mm -hmm. and you have a private practice. So where can our listeners, one, order your book and two, if they are a resident of the state of California, how can they be a part of your private practice? Yeah. So private practice, you probably just buy my website is tiffanyloggins.com, which which is really nice. My sister actually purchased that on godaddy.com like years before I was even like a psychologist, which is quite funny. So if you're ever interested in individual therapy or a consultation, I also do mental health and wellness and DNI talks for organizations too, as well, couples therapy. You can definitely find me on there. And as far as the book, I actually think I actually have a book over here. It just came, it just came in which is, it's a CBT workbook for therapists, but also for self-healers. And so this will be out and available on Amazon March 1st. So in a couple of weeks, a really good price point. It's like 20 bucks. So it's like not that expensive. I also don't get any more money from it either. So it's not like I'm trying to, it's actually really helpful. I'm super proud of it. It has a chapter on there for eating disorders, but it also, the way the book is set up is each chapter has different exercises to help you. So there's an anger, anxiety, depression, OCD, PTSD, sleep, self-esteem, eating disorders. Like anybody can do something in that book that you've ever had an issue with. And so I love that you can just pick it up and you can pick out what chapter you're struggling with and really get some very helpful tips and exercises. That is incredible. Thank you so much, Tiffany. I do want to ask you, what is CBT? Cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> I, was almost, I almost had it. Okay, yeah. awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tiffany. We appreciate you. We appreciate your gift, what you do for us. And lady, as you listen, make sure you go support Tiffany and the work that she's doing. We appreciate you, lady. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys for having me. This is awesome. I love, I'm so proud of you guys doing this podcast. I think it's amazing. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Hey, lady. It's Dr. Dom here from the Cultivating Her Space podcast. Are you currently a resident of the state of California and contemplating starting your therapy journey? Well, if so, please reach out to me at drdominiquebroussard.com. That's D-R-D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-B-R-O-U-S-S-A-R-D.com to schedule a free 15-minute consultation. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for joining us today. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship 
with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, visit our website at cultivatingherspace.com and be sure to click the Patreon tab to get access to video content, bonuses, and our weekly after show. And before we meet again, repeat after me. What's meant for me will never miss me. I don't have to chase. T, okay, I'm not trying to interrupt the show. But I had this random idea I want to share with you, and I don't want to forget it. Tell me, tell me, what is it? Okay, so you know how at the start of every new year, birthday, new moon, anniversary, new month, new anything, people find themselves wanting to have a reset, but they're not sure where to start. Mm -hmm, I sure do. What are you thinking? What if we hosted a workshop where we could interact with our listeners to talk about Stuff like self-care and self-love. OMG. And we could even have a session about manifestation, leaving toxic relationships, and becoming our best selves. Girl, I am so excited. I'm sold. We could call it the Vibrate Higher Empowerment Workshop. Yes. Yes. That is it. And, and, and. We could even host a live quarterly wind down to check in and build community as we vibrate higher all year. Yo, I love it. I love it. I'm so, let's do it. Lady, if this sounds like fun to you, visit newyearworkshop.com and join us for the Vibrate Higher Empowerment Workshop. If you want to release baggage, set intentions, and manifest the life you desire, this is just for you, lady. That's newyearworkshop.com. We can't can't wait wait to to connect connect with you. you.